If you run a business, Bank of Clark County has you covered. Offering cash management services to automate and simplify your business banking, streamlined digital banking, and merchant payment processing that's a one-stop solution. Plus, Bank of Clark offers corporate credit cards that help you optimize capital, organize expenses, and enhance your business. Whether you're looking to earn points faster or lower your APR, Bank of Clark County has the card that's right for you. Member FDIC. We're going to uh, learn through a very interesting insight from Reb Laser Silver on the difference in grammar and uh, how that also affects our understanding of various halachas of the word shnei and shnayim. So uh, this begins with a question that uh, Reb Laser Silver tells us he was asked in Harrisburg uh, when he uh, came to the United States. He was a rabbi in Harrisburg and uh, someone asked him, that when the Torah describes the concept of witnesses in Dvarim Perak Yud Zayin Pasuk Vav, so uh, the Torah says, Al Pishnayim Edim Oshlosha Edim Yumas Hames, that the uh, person is put to death for a capital crime based on the word of two witnesses or three witnesses. But the Lo Yumas Al they cannot be killed based on one witness. Now, the question is that this word, Shnayim Edim, does not seem to be grammatically correct. It should have just said, Shnei Edim. And in fact, that's in chapter 17, but in chapter 19, Pasuk Tesevav, uh, the Torah tells us the same basic halacha, uh, but it phrases it differently, Lo yakum that the one witness is not believed for any sin that they testify a person did. Rather, al pishnei edim or al pishlosha edim yakum davar. But it has to be with either two witnesses or three witnesses. And here you'll notice it says al pishnei edim. The phrase used is shnei edim, which is grammatically correct and not shnayim edim. So this person asked Reb Lazer, why in chapter 17 does it use the word shnayim edim? Uh, when later on it uses the phrase Shnei Edim. So Reb Lazer explained this, that there's a basic difference between the word Shnei and the word Shnayim. This is not just a coincidence which one the Torah uses. And he points to a Medrash Tanchuma in Parshas Masay. The Medrash is talking about the story of Eliyahu HaNavi and his fight with the Nevi'e Habal, with the false prophets. Now, when the Navi describes what Eliyahu told the false prophets, he challenged them to a sacrificial duel. They would each bring sacrifices and see whose was accepted. So the phrase he uses is V'yitnu lanu shnayim parim. That they should select two cows and uh, each side would bring one of them. So the Medrash understands that these two cows had to be te'omim me'em achas. They had to be twins born of the same mother. Hagedelim al evus echad who grew up uh, drinking and eating from the same trough and uh, then they would decide one of them would be for Eliyahu and one of them would be for the false prophets. So they wanted to keep the competition fair, so they made sure that it was exactly the same. But Reb Lazer explains, and the Rashashi quotes also says this, that where did the Medrash see in this phrase that they had to be exactly the same? It's not enough for them to be similar, but they had to have the same upbringing, the same mother. They had to have the same history. 
So he explains that that's from the word Shnayim. The word Shnayim in the Torah means twins. It means that they have the same, not just similar, but even more so that there's a unity of purpose to them. And that's different from the word Shnei. And Reb Lazer quotes two examples of this. Uh, when we talk about the goats of Yom Kippur, it's called Shnei Seirim. And uh, there the Mishnah tells us that they don't have to be the same. They have to be similar. They have to look the same and not be the same size and the same cost. But they do not need to be twins. They need to be similar, not the same, because it's Shnei Seirim two goats using the word shnei. And uh, similarly, also the uh, sacrifice that someone who has tsaras, the uh, biblical form of leprosy, so they bring shtei parim, two uh, birds. And uh, again, it's shtei. So uh, the Mishnah says that it doesn't have to be exactly the same, but it has to be similar. But uh, the word shtei indicates similar and not the same. So with this, according to Rabbi Lazar, is the key distinction between shnayim and shnei. And uh, he goes now through a number of other statements in Midrashim that support this thesis. Uh, the Medrash, when it's commenting on the story of the two spies that Yehoshua sends at the beginning of Perak Beis in Yehoshua, so uh, the way Yehoshua describes it is shnayim anoshim meraglim. So the Medrash Tanchum and Parsha Shlach says that these two people were Pinchas and Kalev. So again, the question is, how did the Medrash see in this Pasuk that we're talking about Pinchas and Kalev? So Reb Lezer says, Lishitoso, based on this idea that since it said Shnayim Anoshim, so it indicates a certain unity of purpose, a certain sameness. So it couldn't have just been two random people. And the Pinchas and Kalev were two well-known leaders of the Jewish people, both of whom had endangered their lives to uh, stand up for Hashem. Uh, Kalev, when he stood up to the other spies who spoke badly about Israel, and uh, Pinchas, when he stood up to Zimri, who was sinning publicly. So uh, if it says Shnayim Anoshim, two people with a unity of purpose, then it probably refers to these two well-known leaders. Uh, similarly, there's a story in the Navi uh, when Shlomo becomes the king in Malachim Aleph Paragimel, a famous story, two women come and uh, each one says that her son is alive and the other women, woman's son had died. And uh, the way the Navi describes it is Shtayim Nashim Zonos, that they were two women who were prom- promiscuous. So uh, there's a medrash that's quoted by the Me'iri in Yevamos Taf Yudzayin Amad Beis, and uh, this also appears in the medrash Shirashirim Raba Aleph Yud. And uh, there, there's one opinion in the medrash that these two women were actually a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. They weren't uh, strangers to each other. They weren't people that just happened to coincidentally have an issue, but they were actually family. They were a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. And the fight concerned an issue of chalitza. When a man dies and he's had no children, so then his brother has to marry his wife or uh, perform chalitza. So the fight over here was that the mother-in-law said that her son was alive, but her daughter-in-law's son, in other words, her grandson, had died. And therefore, her daughter-in-law, before the husband had died, and so her daughter-in-law required yibum or chalitza. And the daughter-in-law said that her son was alive, and so she did not need chalitza. So uh, the question is, how did the medrash see in this phrase that these two women had some sort of relationship? They weren't strangers. So again, says Reb Lezer, because it calls them shtayim. If they were strangers, unrelated, they were just two women, it would have called them shtay nashim. But shtayim nashim, so that must mean that there was some unity of purpose, there was some sort of connection, and uh, therefore we say that 
they were a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. Uh, similarly, he explains that there's Yerushalmi, which quotes uh, that when they brought the carbon tamid, the daily sacrifice, in the morning and the and the evening, so they had to determine in the morning that to take the two animals and decide which one would be in the morning, which one would be in the evening, and this is derived from Shnayim Layom. So again, Reb Lazer says that the Yerushalmi saw this in the word Shnayim. Since the Torah calls it Shnayim, there must be some togetherness, sameness at some point. So it means in the morning you have to take the two animals and decide at that point which one is going to be used when, as opposed to just deciding in the afternoon which one you're going to use. So uh, this is derived from the word Shnayim. Now, returning to our initial case, so Reb Lazer says that this explains the difference between Shnei Edim and Shnayim Edim. In chapter 17, the Torah is dealing with a capital offense. And in that situation, the Gemara says that the two witnesses have to give their testimony together in court. They can't come in separately and uh, each one say what they saw. They'd have to be there together. So there's a certain sameness. There's a unity. And therefore, we refer to them as Shnayim Edim. Shnei Edim would not be correct. It would not capture the unity that's going on. So uh, when it comes to capital cases, we refer to Shnayim Edim. Whereas in chapter 19, we're talking about financial cases, and there the halacha is that one witness can come in and then another can come in after him. They can come separately, so therefore that would be called shnei edim. So this is what the Torah is trying to tell us uh, when it distinguishes the two different usages of the word, that when it comes to capital cases, there's a unity amongst the witnesses, whereas when it comes to financial cases, they are both witnesses in this case, but they don't have that unity. They're similar, but not the same. Now, Reb Lazer continues uh, to explore this notion, uh, moving on from the grammatical point, and he explores what this exactly says about these two different types of testimony. And he points to Gemara in Makos, Davavam, and Beis. The Gemara gives another distinction between capital cases and financial cases. And that is what happens if the witnesses see the activity, the action that's done separately. So uh, they both watch what happened, but they do not see each other. They're standing in different places and they can't see each other. So uh, the Gemara Kloser of Nachman that says, Edus miuchedes is k'sherab dinei mamanus. This type of testimony is kosher when it comes to uh, financial cases. All right, why? Because it says, lo yumas al pi'ed echad, it cannot be killed based on one witness. So it means that in capital cases, if they're not standing together and watching or they can't see each other, then uh, their testimony is invalid. But in financial cases, even if they're separate, then they are okay. So then the Gemara quotes that Rav Zutra asked on Rav Nachman, if so, so then what happens in a situation of a capital case where two witnesses come and they say that they saw somebody do something for which they deserve the death penalty. So, and then there's two witnesses who testify similarly, but those, each group did not see each other. And then it turns out that one of them are Zomamin. They're false witnesses. So, uh, because there is no connection between these witnesses, we would say that the group of false witnesses, uh, their testimony is invalid, of course. And uh, the kosher witnesses stand. Says Rav Zutra that according to Rav Nachman, if this kind of testimony would be combined in a financial case, so then at least we should use it to save a person in a capital, in a death penalty case. 
And the Rashi explains this because we have a principle, ha'eda. the Torah says that the congregation should save whenever possible, meaning we try in any possible way to be lenient and not give the death penalty. So in this situation, we should at least use these false witnesses who were not standing with the kosher witnesses in order to save the person's life. Obviously, we're not going to combine them in order to kill someone who doesn't deserve it, but we should at least use it to be more lenient and to save them. Now, Tosos asks a question on this whole halacha, and he says that how could you possibly distinguish between a case, a financial case, and a capital case when we have a principle, the Gemara derives from the verse, Mishpat Echad Yelachem, the Torah says there shall be one judgment, and the Gemara derives that we always compare financial cases to capital cases. So how can we distinguish that in financial cases, separate witnesses who see separately work, whereas in capital cases, they don't? So we have these two questions. We have the Gemara's question that uh, why don't we at least use edus miucheres when they didn't see together to at least save someone whose life is on the line. And we have Tosos's question that how could you distinguish between financial and capital cases when there's mishpat echad? So says Rab Lazer that uh, he believes that he has an answer to this. And he begins by answering Tosos's question. Since the Torah explicitly said shnei when it comes to financial cases, and it explicitly said shnayim when it comes to capital cases. So there's an explicit ruling in the Torah based on his grammatical analysis that in financial cases, they are separate units. The two witnesses are viewed separately, even though they both are needed. Whereas in uh, capital cases, they're viewed as one unit. That's the meaning of the word shnayim. So that's why edus miucheres doesn't work when it comes to dine nefashos, to capital cases, because the Torah explicitly says that they must be shnayim, they must be one unit, and seeing separately is not one unit. So you can't ask what about mishpat echad when the Torah explicitly distinguished this distinction that uh, capital cases they cannot see together, whereas financial cases they can now, based on this, uh, Reb Lazer proceeds to also answer the Gemara's question, and this is because he believes there's a different understanding of the question from Rashi. Rashi understood that we always look for any leniency in a capital case, and Rashi on the Amud before on Vavam and Aleph also explained that uh, because the Gemara said over there that if you have one witness who's invalid, let's say you have three or four witnesses and one of them is invalid, so there's still enough witnesses to make this a co- your testimony. So that would work in a case of financial situations. But when it comes to capital cases, death penalty cases, then the whole testimony is thrown out, the entire group, even the other two or three witnesses. So where Rashi explained the rationale is because we take any leniency we can in capital cases. And again, Tosos asks their famous question that how could you distinguish between financial and capital cases when there's mishpat echad? Uh, says Rav Lazer that according to his idea, he has a bit of a different reading of this than Rashi. The reason why if you have three or four witnesses in a capital case and one of them is invalid, the entire thing is thrown out, is not just because we look for any leniency, but because the Torah called the witnesses in a capital case shnayim. So they are one group. 
uh, he refers to them, they're all partners, they're all together in this. So if one of them is thrown out, the whole thing has to be thrown out. Even if there's enough people to stand on their own, but they're all together, they're one unit, and if part of it goes, then the whole thing goes. As opposed to a case, a financial case, in that situation, we view each witness separately, and therefore if one of them goes, but there's enough remaining that the testimony should be valid, then we accept it. And again, this answers Tosus's question, because you can't apply Mishpat Echad in this situation where the Torah explicitly said that in financial cases they're each a separate unit and in capital cases they are all one unit. And based on this says Reb Lezer that he could even answer the Gemara's question. The Gemara's question is, why don't we at least use Edus Miucheres when they see separately to save someone from the death penalty? Cloud is powering tomorrow's transformative missions. Federal agencies are partnering with SAIC to help them meet these critical moments where bold moves require confident blueprints, where you can accelerate transformation through consistency, where you can innovate forward and never look back. SAIC quickly and securely migrates large-scale workloads to the cloud with the confidence you need to assure your mission. Learn more at SAIC.com slash cloud. The answer is because in the death penalty, they have to be one unit. They have to be shnayim. And these witnesses who saw separately, you cannot combine them in any way. Only in financial cases where the Torah says shnei, in that situation, you could combine them. But uh, in capital cases, there is no way to combine witnesses who did not see together, and therefore we cannot save this person from the death penalty. So that's Sir Reb Lazer's analysis. Um, there are three distinctions that he draws out practically between this this, this difference of Shnei and Shnayim, uh, and those are with regard to the witnesses giving their testimony. Financial witnesses can give it separately. Uh, capital cases cannot. Uh, similarly, with regard to seeing their testimony, in uh, capital cases, they must see it together. And uh, finally, regarding throwing out the entire testimony, if one of the witnesses uh, turns out to be invalid. So in capital cases, we do that, but not in financial cases. And all of these are predicated on the distinction that when it comes to financial cases, each witness is a separate unit. They just accomplish something together. Whereas when it comes to capital cases, we view them as partners. They're one unit. Now, based on this, Reb Lazer answers another question, which is that the Gemara in Mako says the following. Let's say you have two witnesses and uh, they, they testify falsely. And one of them admits that they testified falsely. And the other one gets caught in court having testified falsely. So the one who admits does not have to pay, and the other one has to pay, but he only pays 50%. Now, the question is that the Gemara in Baba Kama says that if two people together damage someone else, and only one of them has to pay, so then the one who has to pay has to pay 100%. He doesn't just pay 50%, he pays 100%. So if so, when these two witnesses try to testify falsely and one of them ends up paying, why does he only pay 50% and not 100%? So says Rab Lazer, because since we're talking about financial witnesses, and as we've just explained, financial witnesses, the Torah says, are shnei. They are each a separate unit. They are not one unit. They're not partners. So therefore, we don't apply the rule that if only one of them is paying, he has to pay 100%. 
They're, they're separate. They're not partners. It's only in the case of two people who damage someone. So there the halacha views them as partners. And therefore, if one of them doesn't have to pay, the other one has to cover his partner's share and pay 100%. But uh, based on this distinction that financial cases, the witnesses are not viewed as partners. They're viewed as separate units. So that explains why one only pays 50%. And uh, similarly, there's a question from the Shar Mishpat on the Ramah, the Ramah rules that if you have three Dayanim, three judges, and the two of them ruled incorrectly, that someone has to pay something, and the other one disagreed, and then it turned out to be incorrect. So the two who ruled incorrectly, they have to pay two-thirds, each one of them pays a third, and uh, the third, whatever was lost, the person does not recoup. So uh, the same question the Shara Mishpat asks, why don't we say that if two people are paying three parts, so then they have to pay each of them half? Why don't the other two judges who made the mistake have to cover the third portion of the third judge who doesn't have to pay? Instead, we say that there's two uh, portions that are paid, two-thirds, and the other third the person loses. And uh, this question is also asked by the Ktsos and the Nesivos. Uh, says Rab Lazar that according to his idea and uh, what we just said, so this would answer this case too, because since judges are able to rule separately, so therefore we view them in halacha like witnesses in a financial case, and uh, each one of them is their own unit, we don't view them as being part of one unit together, and therefore they only have to pay their portion, but they don't have to cover the portion of the judge who doesn't have to pay. So all of this comes out of... Uh, Reb Lazar's grammatical analysis of the distinction between Shnei and Shnayim, which leads to some very important conceptual differences in these two cases of financial versus capital case witnesses. Now, Reb Lazar applies the same distinction in a totally different area of Halacha. The Mishnah talks about the Lechem HaPanim, the bread which was on the Shulchan, and the Shtei HaLechem, the offering of Shavuos. And the Mishnah says as follows, Afiyosin Bifnim, they have to be cooked inside of the Beis HaMikdosh, Ve'einan Dochos Esa Shabbos, but they are not Docha Shabbos, you cannot cook them on Shabbos, they have to be cooked on Friday. Now, the Gemara points out an obvious problem. The Lechem HaPanim was not switched until Shabbos. So if it's cooked on Friday, and it's sanctified on Friday, then then it would be puzzle, it would be invalid the next morning because it sat out all night. And uh, that's one of the things that invalidates holy objects in the Beis HaMikdash uh, when they sit out uh, lina. So the Gemara points out the following. If you say that these breads have to be cooked inside the Beis HaMikdash, that implies that they are sanctified when they're cooked. That's why it has to be inside. And uh, therefore, you cannot cook them on Friday. They would have to be cooked on Shabbos. Uh, they would have to be Docha Shabbos uh, in order for them not to become Pussel overnight. And if you hold that they cannot be cooked on Shabbos, so they have to be cooked on Friday, then you would have to hold that they are not sanctified when they're cooked, and therefore they should be able to be cooked outside the Beis HaMikdash too. So the ruling of the Mishnah that they have to be cooked inside the Beis HaMikdash, and they're not Docha Shabbos, uh, they have to be done on Friday, seems to contradict each other. Uh, and sure enough, that's how the Gemara concludes. Tosvos uh, writes explicitly that we have to say that there, these are two different traditions. One holds that they have to be cooked inside the Beis HaMikdash, and they can be cooked on Shabbos. 
And the second position holds that they cannot be cooked on Shabbos. They have to be cooked on Friday, but they can be cooked outside of the Beis HaMikdash. Now, the question is that the Rambam paskins both of these things just as the Mishnah did. He says that the bread has to be cooked inside the Beis HaMikdash. And still, he says that it cannot be cooked on Shabbos. So this seems to be a big problem. The Lecha Mishnah raises this, but according to the Rambam, if you're cooking it on Friday and it's already sanctified, so it has to be cooked inside the Beis HaMikdash, then by the time the next morning rolls around, we should have a big problem. Uh, it should have already become invalidated. So Reb Lazar's Rebbe, Reb Meir Simcha in the Orsameach, he suggests the following idea, which is that we only say that things become invalidated by sitting out overnight if they were allowed to be cooked the next day and you chose to cook them early. But if something has to be cooked early, that's the halacha, it cannot be cooked the day of, it must be cooked early, so then the earlier cooking becomes the actual time when it was supposed to be cooked and it would not become invalidated the next day. So based on that, says Reb Meir Simcha, that according to the Rambam, since the bread can only be used on Shabbos, but it cannot be Doha Shabbos, so you have to cook it on Friday, therefore it's not invalidated when it sits over from Friday to Shabbos morning. Uh, that's answer number one. Um, Reb Lazer quotes that Reb Shlomo Goren, when he was much younger, he wrote a book, The Nazar HaKodesh, on the Rambam. And he suggests the following in answering this question. He says that there's a machlokis between Rava and the Rabbah and Rav Chista. What exactly invalidates things when they sit over? So Rabbah and Rav Chista hold that Lina lying overnight, it becomes invalidated as soon as the sun rises the next morning since it's been there overnight and now the morning came, so it's invalidated. Uh, Rava holds that the problem starts when it uh, sits out past its time. So uh, based on that, he says that the Gemara we quoted above, which says that if the Lechem Apanim is cooked on Friday and it sits out until Shabbos, so it doesn't mean that it's going to become invalidated on the first Shabbos because the Lechem Apanim has eight days which are all part of its time. So the first day, uh, the next morning, which is only the second day, is certainly not going to be a problem. Uh, the problem, he says, is that the next Shabbos, a week later, so that morning, it's already the ninth day. So on the ninth day, you're going to have a problem that the bread is going to become invalid. But again, this is going to be a machlokas. Is it invalid in the morning or is it invalid even later in the day because it's outside of the time that's allotted for it? So if you hold that the only problem is in the morning, well, in the morning, it's still on the shulchan. And so long as it's on the shulchan, it doesn't have a problem. It does not become uh, invalidated. It's only later on in the day when it comes off of the shulchan that it might be invalidated. And at that point, it would already be a machlokas. According to Rabbi and Rav Chista, it can't become invalidated later because the psul only happens first thing in the morning and this is already later in the day. And only according to Rava would it become invalid later on in the day. So that Gemara that we quoted above that says that if it's sanctified in the cooking, it can't be cooked on Friday. It has to be cooked on Shabbos. That's only according to Rava, and uh, the Rambam holds like the other position, and therefore it can be cooked on Friday, even though it becomes sanctified at that point, and there's no problem because nine days later, when it would have been invalidated, the morning of is fine, and later on in the day, you won't have a problem. So uh, that's a second resolution to this. 
Reb Lazer suggests a third answer to this question on the Rambam. And he points out that the halacha is ein mekadshin that things do not become sanctified in the Beis HaMikdash unless they were full. When they were put into the kli, the vessel that was going to have them, they have to be full. So based on this, he analyzes a Mishnah which describes the cooking and the preparation of these bread offerings. And it says that the Shtei HaLechem, the two loaves of bread of Shavuos, are cooked one at a time, whereas the Lechem HaPanim, which is 12 loaves, are cooked two at a time. So Reb Lazer asks, why is there a difference? Why is the Shtei HaLechem cooked one at a time and the Lechem HaPanim are cooked two at a time? And he says that it's based on this Halacha that they're only sanctified if you put a full measurement in there. So the Shtei HaLechem, which is only two loaves, if you put two in at a time, it's already going to be sanctified in the cooking. Uh, whereas if you do it one at a time, it won't be sanctified yet. And the lechem hapanim, which is 12 loaves, so two at a time won't be sanctified. And uh, therefore, says Reb Lezer, in an effort to make sure that the bread is not sanctified in the oven, we cook two of the lechem hapanim at a time. It's two out of 12, so it's not sanctified. Uh, but with the shteya lechem, we cook one so that it's half, and therefore it's not sanctified. So based on that analysis, this would also answer the Rambam. Since we are cooking less than the full measurement in both cases, therefore it does not become sanctified through this process, and that's why you're able to cook it on Friday, and still it does not become sanctified because the full measurement is not there, and it's not invalidated the next morning. So that's Reb Lazer's answer, uh, but there is still one lingering question over here, which is, if the whole point of this process is to ensure that the bread does not become sanctified in the oven, so why don't we just cook one loaf all the time? For both Shteha Lechem and Lechem Hapanim, let's just cook one loaf at a time. Why do we have to differentiate and do two at a time for Lechem Hapanim? So Reb Lazer applies his thesis and he says that the Torah, when it's describing the Lechem Hapanim, uses the phrase Shtayim Ma'arachos. So since uh, the word Shtayim is used, that means that it can't just be similar, it has to be the same, and therefore it has to be cooked at the same time. So you could not just cook one at a time, uh, the entire row has to be cooked at the same time, uh, but it still it does not sanctify it because all 12 were not cooked. Only two were cooked at a time, uh, so they're not sanctified, but you have fulfilled the rule of Shtayim Ma'arachos. As opposed to the Shtei HaLechem, which you don't have that rule, they don't have to be the same, they can be similar, so therefore you're able to cook them one at a time and then put them together. Now, as an editorial note, I'll point out that the Torah does use the word Shtayim when it comes to Shtei HaLechem. Uh, it says Lechem Tenufa Shtayim. So the word Shtayim is used also with regard to the Shtei HaLechem, and it should have to be the same over there too. Uh, but I, I think the answer is, simple that Reb Lazer's examples are all where the word shtayim preceded the noun. So it modifies the noun, you know, shtayim ma'arachos or shnaim edim. Uh, but in this case, it's lechem tenufa shtayim. So the word shtayim comes after, so it does not modify it in the same way. And uh, therefore, we view it as a situation of shtay. And in fact, the chazal, when they talk about it, they refer to it as shtay ha-lechem, not shtayim lechem. So uh, that would indicate, that, like his theory, that uh, these two 
loaves can be cooked separately so long as they're similar. So uh, that's how Reb Lezer explains why in these situations the lechem aponim has to be cooked two at a time, uh, whereas the shtea lechem can be cooked separately. And uh, based on this, Reb Lazer says that he has a new halacha, which is the lechem apanim, you have to keep track of which loaves were cooked together to make sure that they're on the same row. There were six rows of two each, so they had to make sure that both loaves on the row were the ones that were cooked together. You couldn't cook two loaves together and then mix and match them in different rows because shtayim marachos means that each row, the loaves have to be the same. They have to have that shtayim and therefore they had to keep very careful track of which loaves had been cooked together so that they would end up on the same row. Um, and Rab Lazer says that uh, he went to Europe and uh, he shared this basic idea uh, about the difference between Shnei and Shnaim with Rab Meir Simcha. And Rab Meir Simcha was very impressed and uh, complimented him a lot. So uh, this is a, an important idea. It's a very interesting idea. It helps explain a number of different areas throughout the Tanakh where the word Shnaim or Shnaim uh, is used as opposed to shtei or shnei. And uh, more than just a grammatical insight, it also gives us conceptual insight into these various halachas. And we're back. Well, tax season's here, folks, and you know... Hi there. Whoa, where'd you come from? April here to tell you about the tax filing software from Tax Act. Uh, seriously, were you, like, hiding behind my desk? Seriously, Tax Act makes it easy to get your maximum refund. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Switch to Tax Act today, and you can start for free. Or as we say at Radio Land. <laughs> subtle. Tax Act. Tax Act. File for less and get more. See TaxAct.com for details.